All right. Welcome you who are tuning in through the net, through Facebook Live, and perhaps later on through the podcast. Welcome to the Chicago Cohort, uh, to our chapel series on the Book of Acts, also known as the Pentecostal Handbook. Today we are picking up in Acts chapter 22, so let's hear it for our visionary leader and pastor, Joe Y. Rostek. Come on, give it up for the man of God as we get ready to hear the Word of God. <laughs> Excited. That's, that's it. Okay, thank you, my brother. All right, let's open up, as he said, to Acts chapter 22. Um, as I was listening to all of the rest of the chapters, it may seem for us, especially, you know, even for me to put myself out there, a little bit less exciting because you're dealing with now the historical um, narrative of Paul going from being a free man doing ministry to being arrested, defending himself, and eventually being brought to Rome. There are not a lot of significant ministerial things that happen, but as we mentioned before, this seems to be a letter written to the church, obviously for the church's benefit, but also one that's going to be submitted to leaders in Rome to you know, tell Paul's story and the church's story so in hopes that they'll stop persecuting Christians. So it's important that we still read it and understand the historical narrative, even though it's not kind of following the same pattern of revival or riot anymore. So we left off in Acts chapter 21 with Paul um, being... Uh, basically arrested by the Jews. They're kind of taking him over and uh, wanting to kill him. And the Romans have to get involved now is what we're going to learn in Acts chapter 22 and that they had to come basically uh, to his defense. What I would like to do is just have um, Oscar read verses 1 all the way to verse 5. So if you could hold your phone, Oscar, and do that as well. I'm just going to make an adjustment to the heat here. But uh, just start reading to verse 1 onward. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very, Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew born in uh, Tarsus of Cilicia, thank you, but brought up Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied and understand Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I per persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. As the high priest and all the council can themselves testify, I even obtained letters from them to their ancestors, associates, and Damas Damascus, and went there to bring these people as prisoners into Jerusalem to be punished. Wonderful. Thank you, my brother. And so we have to all work on the names of the Bible, don't we? So that's an encouragement for all of us to do that. So we look here, he addresses them as brothers and sisters. That was a common title for Jews to regard themselves as brothers and sisters, a, a title they would use amongst each other. That could be a little bit confusing when you get to the book of Hebrews and understanding the warnings. Sometimes people say because the author of Hebrews is calling them brothers and sisters using the word Adolfoi, 
that uh, this could be just to Jews, not necessarily Christians. But as you read further in the book of Hebrews, when he addresses them, he then talks to them as fellow believers, having received salvation, having accepted the teachings of Christ. So I just say that because there are times when it's culturally acceptable in the Bible to call somebody a brother or sister who is not necessarily a born-again person. And so certain cultures carry those traditions. But we want to make sure that we differentiate between our spiritual brothers and sisters. Now, one thing we want to make sure of is that we don't uh, consider people our spiritual brothers and sisters, um, uh, use the term rather culturally a brother and sister, and then confuse them to think we mean that spiritually they're our brother or sister. So uh, when talking to a Mormon or somebody, and you may be used to always using the language brother or sister or, you know, listen to me, brother, you know, you want to be clear with them. Brother in humanity, brother in humanity, but not brother spiritually. Does everybody get that? Okay, so that's an important thing to know about that title there. Brothers and fathers is what he says there, brothers and fathers. Now listen to my defense. When they heard him begin to speak in Aramaic, and they began to become very quiet. And so Aramaic was the modernized version of Hebrew at that time. Definitely not the same language, but shared a lot of things in common. And so you could just say it was the modern language that Hebrew people would speak, and it was, it was very similar to Hebrew. And uh, I'm not uh, scholarly in Semitic languages, so you guys would have to look up some of those differences, but there was a lot of similarities there. Um, you can see this actually in the last words of Jesus. One is like Eloi, and then one is like Eli. Uh, and there's different variations, but very similar. And, and so uh, I don't even know at this time if Aramaic had different dialects. It might have. That, that could also be true. So that gets their attention. And then uh, Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, 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 Cilicia rather, Cilicia. And Cilicia today is in modern Turkey. So Paul is saying, hey, I am a Jew and I was born over here in Turkey. Uh, like for us, that would be in modern day Turkey. I was born over here, but I've been brought up in this city. So I've been with you guys. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. Now, have we heard the name Gamaliel in the book of Acts before? Yes, we have. When did we hear about Gamaliel, Lawrence? Yeah, let it play out, basically. Exactly. So Gamaliel gave the advice. If it's not of, well, let's leave them alone, because if it's not of God, it will fall apart. If it is of God, we're fighting against God himself. And we talked about Gamaliel's advice not being God's advice, because we're never to let evil just go on as it is in that sense. We should confront it. We should speak up against it. But that was something that God used. That kind of thinking was used by God to give the church more authority to do what they were doing. The best answer for Gamaliel at that time should have been, accept Christ as our Messiah. That's what we need to do. So that would have been the best thing at that time because there is always a truth, and that was the truth for Gamaliel. He should have accepted it. But Paul mentions his mentor, his leader, and he says, I was trained in the law of our ancestors. Now, this is where we have to take a step back and not just look at 
these uh, doctrinal debates with these Jewish leaders like the Jewish leaders are always sinister and they're always conniving and they're, and they're just so easily recognizable as the bad guys. We need to go back to the ancestors and understand who they are, especially the Pharisees. Who were these people? They were a people that arose out of the Maccabean revolt before Jesus was born, after Malachi was written. So we call this the intertestamental period between the Old and New Testament. And we also call it the first temple Jews. When the temple was built, uh, rebuilt there in occupation, uh, excuse me, second temple Judaism, excuse me, not first temple, first temple was King Solomon, a second temple Judaism built with Ezra and Nehemiah when they were under occupation. Occupation. So at first they were under the occupation of the Babylon, uh, Babylonians, then the Persian, the Medes, then the Greeks, okay? And the Greeks during that time started to really oppress the Jewish people. And the Jewish people under the leadership of the Maccabees revolted against them, fought wars, and won and gained their freedom temporarily before they were defeated again. And then Rome defeated Greece. And that's where they find themselves here. But the Pharisees, you have to understand, came out of that Maccabean revolt and rid the land of idolatry. God came on their side and they won these battles. And that's actually where Hanukkah comes from is during that time. So Hanukkah is not a prescribed fact festival by the law of Moses. Hanukkah came after the law of Moses during this time as a remembrance of their victories uh, of their victories and of God being with them. And so these uh, Jewish people at that time, these Second Temple Jews, were punished because of their forefathers' idolatry and now they wanted to become strict followers of the law. So these are the good guys. These are the ones who actually heard, uh, I believe it was Ezra, read the entire book of the law in their hearing. Was it Ezra? Okay, thank you. Ezra read the entire book of the law. They were probably children at that time, and they're like, we will do this. We won't go after the idols anymore. We're not going to be like the Babylonians anymore. We learned our lesson. And from that day, Jewish people never went back. And so the Pharisees are the... Um, the children's children's children, maybe three or four generations going back to their ancestors of those righteous people. So it's not like what they stood for was wrong. It's not like they were uh, intentionally trying to be sinister and trying to do the wrong things. What happened over time was their love for a good thing, the love for the law was their, their love for the law was eclipsed by their love of power and being in control. And, and so they thought they were the guardians of the truth, but then they became hypocritical and said, well, maybe we can break the law a little bit. We're so righteous. Maybe it won't count the same way towards us. And then they started making extra laws for the people to make sure they wouldn't go and break the law again. So we, we call this, and I even heard this, this is what the Jewish people call it, and we call it legalism. And they even thought about it as legalism, legalism but they gave themselves the right to do it because this is what they called it. They called it building a fence around the law. So they wanted purposely to do that. They knew they were doing so They weren't dumb. They knew it wasn't found in the law. But these extra laws, they were doing their sins. Just to be careful, just to be careful. Before we even get close to violating the law, we're going to put up a fence around the law. And I've seen people do that in all Christian branches. I've seen Pentecostals do that. They get so um, 
you know, blessed by the message of holiness, the spiritual gifts. We don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. So then they put up a fence around the law and say, well, let's make sure, you know, we're not supposed to be perverse. We're not supposed to be idolatrous. So let's make sure we'll never do that. We'll, we'll now not allow our, our families to play cards. So because if you play cards, you're getting one, cl- one step closer to immorality, gambling, or whatever. And you know what? We, ought, we shouldn't have a TV because if we have a TV, we're one step closer. So, so people even in our day have done that. And so Paul is saying, I understand you. I have been down that road. I not only know uh, the law as it pertains to Moses, but I know the law of our ancestors. And I think included in there, he would say, I know all the other things. I know about our religion, and I'm, in a sense, a Jew of the Jews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and that's why I put that passage here, Philippians chapter 3, let's go there, to see how proud he was of his background and what he had accomplished, but of course he was willing to trade that for Christ. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for the dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Uh, for it is we who are the circumcision, who, are ser- who serve God by Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who have put no confidence in the flesh, though I, might, my, my, I myself have reasons for such confidence. Now he begins to talk about his past here. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. So he understood those were the things he was supposed to do. So he was a winner according to them. He wasn't lazy. But watch what happens here. But whatever gains to me, I now, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. So going back to this, he's saying, I understand what it's like to be you. I know what it means to win, to have these gains, to say you can commit the law to memory, to say you can remember all of these other extra laws, that you can devote yourself to studying under a mentor and be faithful to them and earn their approval. He says, I understand all of that. And then watch what he keeps saying here. He then says, I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death. So he's saying, man, I even went after them to kill them, arresting both men and women and throwing them them into prison as the high priest and all the council themselves can testify. So he's saying, look, just ask them. You know what I'm about. So Paul is making a great defense here. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. And so there he is. Why should they be mad at him? So put yourself now in the role of the Pharisee, okay? You're think, you think you're doing the right thing. You probably had it wrong with Jesus, though possibly you could be one of those that, that were on the, uh, on the right side with Jesus and Cornelius and all these others, the God-fearers and Nicodemus, whatever. But let's just say you had it wrong with Jesus, but now you see Paul, one of your own, convert to Christianity. This should be compelling to you. This should be like, man, one of us, one of my own brothers, man. He's, he, he was just like me. He was even more intense than me, and he's come to Christ. I should take him serious. But what you're going to see is that they don't want to hear him. And, and that, to me, is what we have to really take away from this. We'll do our part, but you know what? God won't force them to do their part. 
God will never force someone to go to heaven. And so if they want to go to hell, that's always going to be their choice. There is no better witness that they could have had given to them than Paul. And oftentimes I think like, man, if I could just witness to this person, maybe they'll come to Christ. So you'll tell me about your family member, and you'll be in an argument. You'll tell me about the argument. You'll say, man, I wish you were there, Pastor. And I do too, because if I was there, I would tell them what all that I know. But I've been in those kind of arguments where I've told people everything that I know. And they still don't want to accept Christ. And then what even hurts me even more is like when I look at people who know me and did the same things as me, and it's like, you know my testimony. You know what God did. How can you deny this? And, and you know, it doesn't mean all of our lives on the outside are always going to, quote, unquote, look better with houses, money, jobs, whatever. But especially when you can look at my marriage is better, my family is better, I live a well, better life, I'm healthier in the sense of, like, without stress. And you know that God set me free from all these sins. And to watch people turn their back on God is heartbreaking. But once again, Jesus watched people turn their back on him. And so if they did it to Jesus, they'll do it to us. And I really wish I would, re- would have remembered the scripture for yesterday. I got it lanyap a- afterward. Hate you. Something extra. But remember when Jesus said, if they hated me, they will hate you. If they love me, they will love you. And then he said, they have hated me because I came and told them about their sins. I wish I would remember that yesterday in the message I was preaching about how Jesus actually got crucified. It wasn't those controversial ways, even though some of those things were controversial that he hung around women and sinners and validated the Samaritans and other things. But it was really those strong rebukes, his strong stance of authority and basing on who he was, you know, the Son of God, that, that authority that he had that really ticked them off, you know, his identity and what he was doing in that sense. And we should not be surprised if we stand on the authority of Jesus and people get get ticked off with what we have to say, because if they hated him, they'll hate us. And that's exactly what's going on here. These Jews that are there in Jerusalem are probably some of the very same ones that had Jesus crucified, and now they want to see Paul crucified. So now he's going to tell his testimony. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. Now, if you remember in Acts 9-7, it says they heard the voice. They heard the voice. And in the King James, it says in this passage, they did not hear the voice. The NIV rightly translates the word hear, hear, as not understanding. They did not understand. The King James puts it as hear in both, which seems to count as a contradiction. Now, I have a link here for you to look at it. Even in the King James, it's not a contradiction because hear can have two meanings. You can be in the room where people are talking, and you could say, I heard you, but I didn't hear what you said. Okay, I heard you, but I didn't hear what you said. You used hear in two different ways. You said hear in the first way as a sound coming as air, uh, sound waves into your ear. The second way you used the word heard was as understanding. 
and that's the same thing here. But the NIV just puts it into the English word, not to avoid a contradiction, but to actually use it in the context of what it's meant to mean. Paul is not contradicting himself, and nor is Luke, the guy who actually wrote his own book. They are simply using it exactly the same way we do. And then with the King James, the King James actually uses, though in Acts here twice, the same word, Greek word and translates it here. In 1 Corinthians, it translates the Greek word here into understand. So even the King James translators understood that here could have a different meaning as understand or understood. So there is no contradiction but yet you will see these things come up from naive people. And this is what I like to say to those who want to start finding out contradictions with the Bible. I say something very similar to what Cy Ten Bruggen to Kate says to the, the presuppos- what the presuppositional says is, is we don't do Bible studies with atheists. What is the purpose of me trying to, uh, trying to answer every one of your supposed Bible contradictions if you don't even believe in God? If you don't even have a, an account for a standard of morality, who cares if it contradicts itself? So I'm not going to go with you, chasing you down this uh, rabbit trail, you know, and it, you know with, when it's not going to mean anything. So I would just say it to them like this. For the sake of argument, let's just say the Bible's perfect in all of it, what it says. Would you believe it now? You know, let's say the Bible was just, uh, you know, what I would like to point out. I put a post on this one time, and uh, sometimes people be sleeping on my Facebook. They don't understand. Sometimes I'd be coming out with some deep stuff, you know. I know Joe B. be checking it out, you know. But there's a lot of deep stuff that come through there, like the talk of a lot of books and different things. Well, one of the things that I did is I pointed out these scriptures that you could summarize the entire Bible with and the gospel, like in Genesis, and then I went over to like a place in the law, and then I went to a prophetic place in the New Testament place, a Pauline writing, and then like an end times thing, you know. And it's like if you just knew like these seven verses, and I just laid them out, boom, okay. Now let's just say we, so we ask them for the benefit of the doubt. Let's just say it's perfect. Let's move on. And then we could say, which I don't ever want to give up inerrancy, but, but we could just say, let's just say I only believed these seven verses were perfect verses. Would you believe these seven verses? So either way, you want to bring it up as a way to move the conversation forward, I would suggest you do it. If you don't want to do anything for the sake of argument, sometimes I don't feel like doing that at all. I just say, why do contradictions matter in your worldview? You know, why do they matter? Now, if a Muslim says these are contradictions, then we, then, then any other religious belief says, well, there's contradictions and they matter because we believe God is truth and so on and so forth, we'll say, well, then we can line up our contradictions with your contradictions on another day of discussion because I have just as many, if not more, from your book, which I actually believe are substantial, where I don't believe mine are. If you want to do that, let's do that on another day. And you could say that. You could say, let's examine both of our texts and it's contradictory nature. What I like to do is say, I'm not going to argue about axioms. This is what I learned about Clarkian presuppositionalism. So there's different types of uh, presuppositional apologetics. One is um, Vantillian uh, presuppositional apologetics, and that's what Greg Bonson taught as well as the modern-day evangelist um, uh, Seiton Brudenkate. And that's what you'll kind of see with uh, James White and uh, Apologia, Apologia guys. But there's another branch of apologetics, a peer of Vantill, who was also Gordon Clark. As I began to study Go- Gordon Clark more, I began to find myself more in common with him 
then Van Til in some areas, and then I re-listened to some Bonson discussions on Van Til, and then I found out they agreed on those things. So honestly, I don't know where they agree and disagree anymore on these things that I'm going to share with you, but I love the way Gordon Clark talks about it, and that is if we're all going to have a starting point, there's nothing wrong with just granting people starting point, just giving them the blank check going, it's okay. Give me my axiom. I'll give you your axiom, and let's argue from there our presuppositions and propositions that come after that. And presuppositions would still be things you couldn't necessarily prove, but they come correctly from your axiom where propositions would have to be proved, okay? So I would say to the Muslim, I'll grant you your axiom of the Quran. I won't even debate whether or not it's consistent with itself. I'll just grant it as it is, as you believe it. If you will grant to me the Bible as it is, as I believe it, now let us see if our presuppositions are within the revelation to be either um, uh, relevant to the revelation or contradictory to it. And then if propositions, which I believe propositions then are made from basic math and logic and the science that comes from that, okay? So those basic propositions, do they stay in line with your axioms or is there contradictions? And by doing that, I call that axiomatic presuppositionalism. And I have that on a blog that I put up. And I have a triangle that I really express my, 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 my points here. And so why I'm saying all of this is, I will actually avoid the whole contradiction thing with another religion. I'll say, I'll just grant you your Quran. I'll even grant you it as you see it. So there's no reason for me to even debate it on that level. Let's now see your presuppositions that come from it if they are consistent with your revelation. And I don't believe they are. Our presuppositions are, are in line with our revelation, okay? And then, like I said, propositions that come from basic math, logic, and science, I think support the axiom and the presuppositions of the Bible, okay? Now, if you ever want to discuss the things of contradictions in the Bible, do so always with putting up the shield and then slashing back with the sword. So you take your time, you explain it just the way I've explained it, and then now you say back to them at the very least, why do contradictions matter in your worldview? Or if you're debating with the Muslims, say, well, now I have a... Uh, um, a contradiction for you. I want you to answer it, etc. But never only feel like you're on the defense. That's one of the things that I actually don't prefer. Even though I love William Lane Craig, Frank Turek, I use all their stuff as well because I believe all good things belong to the Christian and the apologist should use them all. It's just from the starting point of presuppositions uh, and axioms that I believe we should do apologetics, okay? But I use all of those good things. But, but here's my one thing that I always feel like these guys have, especially like a Frank Turek now, because I can watch him live a, lot with these, uh, live a lot with these university discussions, is he's always on the defense. He's, you notice that? I see you shaking your head. He's always on the defense. He's always taking it for the Bible. Um, and, and it's like, that's great, because that's apologetics, to be ready to give an offense. But the Bible also says to tear down every argument. So you have to come back more aggressive. And I see him do that at times. It's just I would never let up on it. Every questionnaire that comes to me is going to have to stand by their worldview at that time. So it's not just throw a random question to me and then be seated. It's tell me in your worldview, does that even make sense? And you will see, like I said, some of the highlight clips where they do do that. And that's to me where they score the highest points. It's why does it even matter? And I love what um, uh, Jeff Durbin wore to one of his debates a big shirt that said, so what? And, and, that, and that should really be the anthem of Christians right back to the non-believers' questions, uh, so what? 
you know, or who cares? What is your point? What point are you making with brain fizz? What are you trying to say? You know, and then we go on from there. So good thing to recognize that comes in the context right there. See, with me, you never know what kind of commentary you're going to get. Sometimes you get the apologetic study Bible commentary. Other times, you know, you get your standard Pentecostal commentary. Other times you'll get your, uh, you know, cultural, historical background commentary. You know, that's why you got to be well studied. you got to be well studied. I have many, many commentaries I study, then I pray, and then I also develop my own commentaries. And uh, as you can see, I'm doing that through the book of Ephesians. And it would be a goal. It would be a goal of mine to take all of that and put it to one solid book, commentary on the book of Ephesians. But it would never be, and I know my place, it would never be on the level of the level, uh, of the scholarship level of what they would do, because I don't go into the original language and those things. It would be more like a, a, a reader's commentary, kind of like a John MacArthur study Bible, um, a Drake's kind of study Bible, something on that level, because the moment you try to enter into that realm, that's like going to Craig Keener level, you know. It's just amazing how deep these guys' minds go. I was just reading Adam Clark, the great Methodist commentator commentary uh, and, and learning about him. It took him 40 years to make the Methodist commentary, and it was the standard for over 200 years for Methodists. And uh, just to put it in perspective, he wrote his commentary was six volumes, uh, way bigger than Matthew Henry's, Henry's commentary, way bigger than all of these. He, he did half of a 12, if, if they put it in comparison on this biography I was learning, uh, these one guys had all got together, like many of them, I think it was like a handful, like four, five, six, seven, made 12, uh, made a 12 commentary series. One man by himself, a Methodist, made six volumes, uh, six books, you know, huge books on the entire Bible. And that's just a massive amount of work, guys. So some of you may be called to that level of scholarship. And even when I'm doing my writing, I think about, will this live beyond, uh, be, uh, beyond me? And I hope that it does. Okay, so there's a little lanyard there, apologetically speaking. So they did not hear the voice of him who was speaking. What shall I do, Lord, I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. Now this is, once again, we have to stop and say, does this give place to the Judaizers? No. First of all, I just read Philippians today, and Paul throws all this in the garbage that he may know Christ. That's literally what he says towards the end of that passage. So this is not to say that the law is what every Christian should be doing. Remember what I said before is my stance on why these men still kept the law, upheld the law in such a high regard. Uh, he was even in the temple, you know, making these vows with the brothers. The reason is, is because they saw Christianity as a fulfillment of the law, and they wanted to remain in good stance with the Jewish community so that the Messiah might come and rule and reign on the earth for the Jewish people to rule over the nations. The Gentile revelation was just starting to come in. Jesus had talked about it briefly, but said he had more to reveal to them. And Peter's starting to get it, you know, with the, the, the vision he had. Paul's starting to get it. Well, by this time he's gotten it, right? But the, the, the epistles are starting to be written and, and the words are coming out there. So there's not a either or. It's not that they had to stop being a Jew to become a Christian. They could be a full um, covenantal Jew in that sense. Like they could really embrace the true meaning of Judaism as a Christian. 
And that's why he's really trying to tell them, look, this, is, this, is, this guy's a good guy. I'm a good guy. There's nothing we're doing against you. Now, I believe, like I said, after the destruction of the temple, that all of Hebrews then was supposed to be enacted. And that the Jewish people can now by choice continue in the old covenant, but are not mandated to. I believe it was their mandate to do it up until the destruction of the temple because this was the way that God blessed them. And they could certainly be a Christian, someone who believed in the Messiah and be a Jew, because that was the whole point of being a Jew. Okay, So that, that once again doesn't mean because Ananias kept the law that now this Gentile in Ephesians, uh, in Ephesus, needs to keep the law. Does everybody get that? that? That goes back to the council of Jerusalem. They were clear. These guys don't have to do it. And then like I said, because I read it to you before in Hebrews, what is obsolete is now soon and passing and will pass away. It's passing away and soon will disappear. What do I believe that means? For the Jew, after the temple was destroyed, they now could understand that it was only new covenantal living for everyone. New covenantal living. Okay, so this man comes, Ananias, he's telling the story. You guys remember this. We're going to hear it one last time uh, in, in chapter 26, I believe, before, yeah, before we uh, end the book. So you'll hear it a total of three times, 9, 22, and 26. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law, highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Paul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see. Then he said, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. Look at the high regard they had for Jesus here. Uh, you will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. So Jehovah Witness technically is a Jesus witness. Hey, so when we go back to those passages of Isaiah, you will be my witnesses, says the Lord, Yahweh. Who is Yahweh there? The Son, because the Son takes on his Father's name. Are you listening? In the name, not names, of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. So we are Jesus' witnesses. And by being Jesus' witnesses, we are Jehovah's witnesses. We are Yahweh's witnesses, which is the more correct way of saying Yohevahe from the Hebrew Tetragrammaton. It says, you will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. Now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now, right here is probably the best scripture that a oneness Pentecostal can use to show us you have to be baptized to be saved. Now, they couldn't do it with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We know that that argument's been destroyed. So since this is now just a baptismal, what we call baptismal regeneration, that you're not regenerated until you're baptized, we would have to also add into this the Church of Christ. That's what Duck uh, Dynasty believes, that you're not saved until you're baptized. Now, Church of Christ doesn't believe in speaking in tongues and any of those things. They're just a denomination, though, who adopted baptismal regeneration. So to summarize all of those, excuse me, oneness Pentecostal, beliefs of baptism or Church of Christ baptism beliefs, we'll just call this baptismal regeneration and speak to all groups. So is this the baptismal regenerational book? No. But does that sentence teach it? Does the sentence teach it? I would have to say yes if you don't know other passages and what they mean by that. Because it would seem like if that's all I had, it seems like it teaches it, right? Be baptized and wash your sins away. So how do I get my sins washed away according to Paul right here? Or really what Ananias had said to Paul, how do I get my sins washed away? I get baptized. 
Well, should we be threatened by things like that? Absolutely not. If you were to take one scripture and it says, uh, you know, about the day and the hour, no one knows, not the angels, neither the Son of Man, would that be a good scripture to say that teaches that Jesus doesn't know something? Sure, yeah, that's true. But is that all that we have in the Bible? No. Why doesn't the Son of Man know the time of his return? Because while he's in the flesh, he's limited in his knowledge, and the Father has not given him that knowledge. Jesus didn't walk around with all-knowing ability at all times. He was relying upon the Holy Spirit. And so what we have to do is let all of Scripture speak for itself. We have to see how our sins washed away. Does it only say that sins are washed away by baptism? No. Let's go right back to Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Let's go back to Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Because if that's true for somebody, then that would mean that, uh, that you would have to uh, say there's a contradiction in the Bible now or there's a harmonization in the Bible. That's what you're going to be left with. So I'll agree with them that, yes, it appears right there that sins are not washed away until you're baptized. I'll absolutely agree with you about that. But let's see if there's a harmonization in the Bible because I know there's scriptures that tell me I'm washed by my sins that don't mention baptism, okay? And they mention other things. So what's going on here? So let's go to Peter in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. See, he didn't say repentance here. There is no word repentance. So now maybe they might say, well, you know, that, that you just have to add on there. Well, it sounds like you're harmonizing too then. All right? sounds like you're harmonizing too. Well, let's go now to um, where it says washed with regeneration. Washed with regeneration. I believe that's Thessalonians. I didn't have it off the top here. Washed with regeneration. That's going to be Titus, rather, Titus 3.5. Go to Titus 3.5 with me. And see if we have to do some work here, or do we just take that statement as it is? He saved us not because of the righteous things we've done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the baptismal water? No, by the what? The Holy Spirit. Oh, hold on now. We go back to Paul here. No mention of repentance is named there, but we see that in Acts 2.38. We see no mention of the Holy Spirit, but that's mentioned partially, obvious, uh, obviously, in back to, uh, baptism in, in the Holy Spirit, Acts 2.38, but fully in Titus 3.5. So he doesn't mention the Holy Spirit here. He doesn't mention repentance here. He doesn't mention that these things are harmonizing, Okay. So he gives you a summary of what this man had said to him. So now we have a choice. Let's say we have three choices. We could, we could put them all together and say, see, you have to repent, be water baptized for the Holy Spirit to regenerate you. That makes sense. Well, let's go to one more just to answer that objection if that comes up. What does Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 say? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works. Church of Christ is a works-based religion. They believe in faith plus works. So is Oneness Pentecostals. 
So now if you want to say it's faith plus all of these works and that equals the Holy Spirit doing the act of regeneration so you can put it all in a pot as gumbo, you can't harmonize it that way because now you have a contradiction outside of the talk of Paul in those passages. You now have the contradiction of Paul in Romans chapter 4 and in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. So we can't just put them all in a pot now. So we're reduced right back to what we said. Either Paul is contradicting himself or there's a harmonization issue that we have to see here. So if we take Paul and the books of the, uh, the teachings of the Bible all together, we get clearly, especially even in the book of Acts, that salvation comes by faith in Jesus. We know that. We know that from the place with Cornelius. Let's just go there real quick to... Um, Let's go, to, um, let's go to Acts chapter 11, which is Paul's recounting of Cornelius, correct? Peter's, yeah, Peter's recounting of Cornelius. And uh, let's see here what he says to them. No, no, that, that's actually where it happens. But no, the council of Jerusalem. No, where does he explain it? Is it chapter 11? Okay, so I want to just get here. I began to speak. There we go, gentlemen. Here we go. And so who can prevent this? See, watch right here. Thank you. You're right. It is Acts chapter 11. Then I remember what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus, who was I to think I could stand in God's way, which meant for them to get water baptized? So did they get saved at water baptism? Or did Peter see that they received the gift of salvation first, hello, and then receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and then get water baptized? Okay, so according to Peter, when did they get their sins washed away and get the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Before or after they were baptized with water? Before. So you can't have your sins washed away, washed away twice, no. Your sins are washed away the first time. And let me just show you again. Let's go to... Um, Let's go to Philip in Samaria, which is Acts chapter 8, I believe. Acts chapter 8. See, I'm getting better at knowing my chapters now, aren't I, Professor? I've studied it a little bit. Okay, so he preaches to them. Now watch right here again. When they believed the good news about the kingdom of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So when they believed... They were then baptized. But did they have the baptism of the Holy Spirit? No. They got the baptism of the Holy Spirit afterward. I know some of you are getting confused, but I'm purposely showing you that there's different things that happen with water baptism and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But what's always happening first? Salvation by faith. That's what's always happening first. So the oneness Pentecostal has no ground to stand on by saying that the water baptism is what saves you. And now if they want to say it's a part of salvation, you've added works and you're going against Ephesians. So you're standing now in contradiction to the book of Acts and the rest of the Bible. So there is no way of putting it all together like a gumbo mix. I threw that in as a third option. No way to do that. And there's no way for them to harmonize the accounts, not only of didactic um, uh, recollection of the Scriptures, the teachings of the Scriptures, the clear like Ephesians, you're saved by this and that, but also the narratives of the Scripture, as I just showed you. 
So now when we go back to Paul saying that Ananias said to him, which, by the way, he didn't recall in his, it's not actually recalled in the Acts 9 account. He actually recalls it here. It's like, oh, we never heard that before. Okay, but we believe you, Paul. But when Ananias says, be baptized and wash your sins away, let's now look at it from this point of view. Does he mean literally Paul is not saved yet and that Paul has to be baptized to be saved? Or does he mean that baptism, in a sense, represents the washing away of your sins? And it's a public proclamation of what God has done. We would think that's sloppy speaking, but to them, they could be so bold in saying it that way because they understood what salvation was and what that represented, okay? And they could do the same thing with communion. This is the body of Christ. And they would say it like that. This is the blood of Christ. But they didn't mean what the Catholics said it meant. They were partaking of the promise of Jesus over and over again, reminding themselves as they had taken um, Jesus into their heart by his literal words. That's why he said, "What you know? This is my flesh, and this is drink. You know, my flesh is real drink. My my flesh is real meat, and my spirit is uh, my my blood is real drink." He said, "The words I speak to you are spirit, and they bring life." He, Jesus clarified that, so it's a spiritual uh, this this outward thing like communion is an example of the inward thing that God does, and it's a spiritual play in a sense. It does have spiritual power. It's not only just a symbolic, though it does represent what God actually did. But there's spiritual power in the baptism, not the not, not the actual washing away of sins. We know that doesn't come literally that way, but there is power in the representation of the water and how you're washed clean in the baptism to represent how the blood of Jesus washed you clean. And that's why I put Hebrews 10:19. Hebrews 10:19 says that we were washed. Well, but watch watch this. It's not baptism. It says therefore brothers and sisters since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. See all this symbology here? Yes, it's symbolic, but it's also spiritually true. It's also spiritually true that Jesus made away with his literal blood, right? Okay, keep following this here. Since we have a great high priest, uh, a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with the full assurance that faith brings. See, what brings assurance to us? Faith having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. So how is the heart actually cleansed? Is it physically cleansed when I'm baptized? No. My heart is spiritually cleansed by the blood of Jesus. That's literal, right? But my body is physically washed. So it's not only symbolic, it's also spiritual. Do you get it? It goes both ways. Symbols in the Bible actually are spiritual. There's something that when we're in that baptism tank, when we're doing the sacred ceremony of Christ, something spiritual happens when H2O washes over your body. It is symbolic of what happened inside of you, but it's also spiritual to be washed. It's also spiritual. I could say the same thing with communion. We're eating just bread. I get it. We're drinking just grape juice or wine. I get it. But it's also spiritual. 
you're also taking what I like to call the red pill. You're taking the red pill. It's going to open your mind. It's going to show you things. It's going to heal your body even. God can use that literal bread to do something spiritual. And so I remember what one person said, that we oftentimes, um, in response as reformers against Mary, bring her too far down and don't respect her enough. In response to communion, we bring it too far down and treat it as common to not treat it with respect. And with baptism, we take it like this one joker. I'm so disgusted with him that he even comes from the assemblies of God. He interviews church planners, and he thought it was cool to do WWF moves while he was baptizing. What a fool. I rebuke him in Jesus' name. Stop that practice. And you wonder why the Reformed brothers and sisters like Paul Washer and these guys look at our Pentecostal churches like we're idiots. You know what I'm saying? It's like, what are you doing? This is a sacred moment, not for you to take some worldly practice of body slamming and put it into the baptismal tank. Do you see what I'm saying? And so we, we lower those things to where we miss, watch this, we miss the spiritual in the symbolic. That doesn't mean we go to bells and smells and I start putting on a hat and, uh, you know, we start calling each other bishop this and that. No, but, but let us go back to the ancient church enough to know that they could feel comfortable using such language because it was powerful to them. The act of the washing of the body was powerful. And though if you were to hold Paul or Ananias technically to it, they would say, yes, it's still a representation of what Hebrews talks about, my heart being cleansed. Yes, it's still a representation of that. But my body being washed by literal water? Sins are being washed away from my body. I'll explain that more when I get to heaven. I've talked to Jesus face to face. But I think things are actually happening there in that baptismal tank. And I think things are actually happening when I take communion. So let us not lower in response to the bells and smells of, of the, the high church. Let us not take the gospel and these symbols and reduce them down to jokes or to things that are unimportant in, in Christ. Amen? Amen. And uh, I was even just talking with my wife, and she was saying, you know, one of our altar workers was mentioning, you know, you always bring us up really early. We stand there for a long time sometimes. And I'm like, remind them I've been standing there for an hour as well. Uh, but, uh, I, you know, it's was like, could you bring us up at a certain point? But I said, no, 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 I, I'll talk. We're going to actually address this in our leadership meeting this week. Uh, and I said, I want them to understand I actually am looking at this as a symbolic spiritual thing, and this will come in perfect with what we're talking about right now. How many elders are around the throne of Christ right now? 24, the Bible says. That's okay. We'll just times it by two. Now, there's 24 elders around his throne right now. I come from the old school where I believe it would be awesome every service, the elders and deacons who will do the altar calls, they'll sit on the stages here with us, the stage with us in their chairs, so that you can see the authority of the church. It says even when they brought their offering, they did it to the apostles' feet. They did it before the leaders, and that's why you'll still see in a lot of the African-American churches that they will either sit down right there by the altar while people are coming to drop their offering because there's an authority. And once again, we're casual. We're having fun. Pastor wears Timberlands, you know, whatever. Do people still wear Timberlands? Okay, you know, stuff like this. I, we were watching somebody at, at Ripe 
college, man, we just felt so bad for them. Their ankles were exposed because they had their pants so tight at the bottom, and they had like little like little loafers on, whatever, man. Like there's a lot of fashion going on that I don't understand. But I said, man, I'm glad I'm wearing these today. But anyways, um, yes, we're 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 casual, and we don't want to make. More traditions. Well, everybody's going to have traditions. We certainly don't want them to ever replace the Word of God. But we don't want to make things that hinder the move of God. But if there's a tradition that has a symbol in the Bible and it can be helpful to people, I think that's a good thing. And so when I'm preaching up here and we're going to talk to the elders and deacons, I want them to stand with me because what they're doing is representing an amen to the congregation. They're representing the the throne room of God the representation of the authority of the kingdom. And uh, one person will say, well, I don't know what to do. Do I look down? Do I just close my eyes? Do both. But also, if you're making disciples and you know people, look right at them as the word is being preached. Look right at them and feel free to extend your hand to them or say an amen or point to them. You know, because what we're saying is church is not a place we come and hide. It's not a place where we come and just have a spectator sport. The word has been preached. Your elders are standing in front of you. Those that can have prophetic unction are here now. The power is here to heal. God is with us. And and, and if I could, and if people were that good as speakers, I'm telling you, as the church grows, we will do things like this. I'll just hand the mic and say, I've said what God said. Now, Jared, say the closing. Brother, you say the closing. You see how I do that sometimes with testimonies as well. Because it's like, I've said what I've had to say. Somebody else say it again so they don't think it's just me. Let it be established by two or three witnesses. Let the church know that the church has spoken, that God was among us, we were here, and it was powerful. Amen? So I know this person didn't, didn't have that in mind. They were just thinking practically because we do everything else practically, you know. Well, why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? But I want them to know behind that simple thing, there's a tradition there I want to have, right? And it can be changed. You guys don't have to always do it that way. I've done altar calls where everybody just runs forward. And why do we do them anyway? This is not a literal altar of the Old Testament. But once again, it's a symbolic thing. Is the carpet different here than it is back there? No. But we believe when people came to Jesus, in the coming to Jesus, Nicodemus' heart was changed. There was a humility brought forth. In the coming to Jesus, the woman with the issue of blood had to do something about her face. She couldn't just sit back and do nothing. And so when we've preached the word, we call men and women to come. And as they come, to walk out in their faith and to step out onto the water and believe God for miracles. Amen? So those are just some things to think about. Um, But no, this does not teach baptismal regeneration. All that it teaches is the great value they put on baptism and what it meant to them and how they had no problem summarizing it that way, just as we can use those same kind of language today. And I hear people use that language all the time, and I don't correct them and say, well, you were really saved three weeks ago. No, today is a day where their salvation becomes public, and they want that to be special too. You know, and so, yes, we, we come back and we show them. It's not any work. It wasn't the baptismal work that saved you. It wasn't the communion, whatever. But I know what they mean when they say, today I'm giving my life to God. When they're in the baptismal tank, today I'm doing, I'm going to get my sins washed away. Who are we to stop them when that was the very way Paul was preached to himself? And then by reciting Ananias, he preached the same way, right? We know the intricacies of the message. It doesn't contradict, it harmonizes. Amen.
When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing them. Then the Lord said to me, go, I'll send you far away to the Gentiles. Uh, So actually, in Acts chapter 9, there's no mention of this encounter that he has with Jesus. So we see that, like, uh, uh, Luke can't tell everything. But Paul, when he tells his story, Luke thinks it's good to include those things. The crowd listened until he said this. What's the part that made them upset? Was the part about going to the Gentiles? And this this is a quick thing just for uh, those who deal with black Hebrew Israelites. If some groups consider the Gentiles simply to have been Jews who were dispersed to the other nations and now were living as Gentiles, that statement actually makes no sense here because he says, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The Gentiles were separated from the people here that were rejecting him. These people, the people of God. And I could show you that further more, how distinctions are actually made from the Lord's people to the Gentile people. So they are not a kind of like secret Jew, and so only Jews get saved. That's what actually black Hebrew Israelites believe falsely. So I just wanted to show you that that it's this distinct group of people from the people of the Lord. And no matter how dispersed the Jewish people got, and even though he said, I will say you are not my people, and I will deny you in that way, they were still always his people, because by the time the book ends, he says he's going to bring them back in all those prophetic books in Isaiah and Jeremiah. The curse of you not being my people was the curse of them being taken over by those nations and not being protected, but it did not remain on them, so it didn't matter where they got dispersed. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this, then they raised their voices, so they just have to read in context, and they shouted, rid the earth of him. Well, so much for that, right? So that didn't work. So we're thinking, you know, he's going to get someplace with these guys, and he doesn't. It's not fit for him to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their clothes and flinging dust in the air, you guys can start loading up for class. The commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. He directed him to be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him. So they're about ready to beat Paul, right, whip him. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't been found guilty? And now we know why Paul had two names now. It wasn't because because God chose it to have two names like Peter. No, he had two names, a Roman name and a Hebrew name, because he was a Roman citizen and a, and a Jew. When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do, he asked. This man's a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And they had to tell the truth. And if they were caught lying, they would get in a lot of trouble. And once they said they were, they had to be treated like one until they could prove otherwise. So that's how serious it was. So when he said, yes, I am, it's serious, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. But Paul says, I was born one. So they get the idea that somewhere in Cilicia, Cilicia that Paul's father became a Roman citizen or his grandfather. Somewhere around there, these Jews could have become Roman citizens by doing good work for the Roman people at that time. So his father, the, the, by, by reference here, his father had to have been a Roman for him to be born a Roman. But it had to also be Jew because he was from the stock of Israel, which would have come from his mother and his father. He, he would have not just had one side of his family. He would have had both sides there to be that kind of Jew that he was. I had to pay a lot of money. He said, no, but I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. 
The commander wanted to find out exactly what Paul was being accused of by the Jews. So the next day he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and him. To, uh, then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. So he gets arrested. About ready to get beat. He says, I'm a Roman citizen. They say, oh, man, we can't do this to a Roman citizen. we got to let him go. Then the next day he says, come back and see me with the Jewish people, and we'll continue on in the story. You guys know where we're at. We're just still here in Jerusalem while Paul is arrested right there right around 57 AD. Many more things to discuss about his trial here. book will end in chapter 28. Uh, next Monday I will be here. The following Monday after that, the last Monday in April, Pastor Jared will take his take at the book of Acts, and uh, that will be Acts 24, Acts 24. So that would be awesome. He'll have the privilege of preaching one chapter, amen, out of the 28, which is awesome for him to have that privilege, but it kind of takes away my ability to say I preach through the entire book of Acts. So I may have to just preach 24 to my wife and kids on the way home or something to have that honor, amen, because I want to say it. I preach through the whole book of Acts. Amen. If I ever say it, you guys have the right to correct me. Well, Pastor, uh, you didn't preach through 24. So you preached 27 out of the 28 chapters. What should we know from this chapter 22 today? Be ready in season and out of season to testify about what Christ and God has done in your life. Amen. Father, we thank you for this wonderful time together. We're learning, God, how to stand up for our faith, to share our testimony, to never back down, and to believe you to build your church, even through our hardships. We ask you to do it now in the students' lives and in our lives and in, in this city. In Jesus' name, amen.